This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. On the way uh, this weekend, Toronto this weekend, it's Ben Mulrooney in the chair between 7 and 10 o'clock tomorrow, 7 and 10 on Sunday, and he joins me right now. Nice to have you on, friend. Great to, uh, great to hear your voice. Good morning, Gregory. How are you? I'm really, really good, as a matter of fact. Um, you Great. and you uh, messaged me yesterday about this Toronto police budget, and it's a really interesting conversation. I know you're going to dig into it over the weekend, um, but your initial reaction, we saw Myron Demke out there front and center, and as you know, the Toronto police chief um, doesn't, lo- doesn't love doing a lot of media. He's hard, he's hard to get a hold of at the best <laughs> of times, but he had yeah. lots to say yesterday, didn't he? Oh my gosh! Well, he was—I mean, as uh, that was as mad as I think a police chief will allow himself to get, as frustrated as a police chief will allow himself to get, knowing that the job that needs to be done uh, by frontline officers, whom, as we've seen in the press, are, are constantly and increasingly being put in harm's way to serve uh, to serve the people of Toronto, uh, are going to have to do it on less money than probably they ever thought imaginable. It is. This is uh, as, as we look at how much more money the average Torontonian is going to have to be shelling out for the services that we already pay for that are already insufficient. This is going to be yet another one of those services that's going to take a knock. Now, the 911, um, he mentions the 911 uh, call wait time. They're at over 22 minutes in responding to these priority one calls in the city. After they get the information, they label it uh, a priority one or two or three. And it's over 22 minutes. But I'd make the case they had a bigger budget last year, Ben, and they and their wait time grew. So I think it's worth pushing back on DemQ to go. I understand about services. I understand you may need more officers, but going in that direction to say it's all about nine one one response time. There was more money last year, and the response time got worse. Yeah, and and uh, and and traffic in the city got worse, which means it's harder for yeah. uh, for emergency vehicles to get anywhere. I mean, I, I live in and around the corridor where those temporary pilot project bike lanes were supposed to go in that immediately became permanent, which I thought was one of the most disingenuous moves uh, that the city council could ever do. I've talked to, uh, to, to um, uh, businesses up and down that corridor. Not a single one of them asked for it. Not a single one of them wants it. And yet there they are. And, and people have been essentially saying, if you're going to have a heart attack, Make sure it's nowhere near Young Street because you will probably be waiting a very long time for help. I've seen video of of emergency vehicles trying to get up. But when there is nowhere for the cars to move out of the way, there is nothing for that emergency vehicle to do. So you put those two things together and it starts to make sense to me. Yeah, even I think about it along Hospital Row, Ben, um, and a lot of those uh, obviously um, sick kids along there. um, There's other massive hospitals and just all that construction, just all those lane closures around university. If you're headed, uh, if you will, north to Queens Park, it is a it, you're going through like a slalom course of pylons yeah. and i can't imagine somebody needing to get there in a hurry right now yeah and it doesn't matter how big your budget is you, this no. no amount of money is going to is going to make cars magically disappear out of your route especially if they don't have another lane to move into to give you that route um, I know you're going to talk about the TDSB cell phone policy as well. My kid's a little bit older than yours. They're 17 and 15. So I, I know that, you know, there, there's a there's a utilization for them to have a phone at school. But oftentimes I'll get a text message from like, what's for dinner tonight? Where are we going this weekend? Did you see the Raptors just made a trade? And I'm like, 
aren't you in class? These are the things yeah, that we yeah. never would have contacted our parents about, right? Oh, God, yeah. And listen, I, I get I get texts from my kids, and I find them to be a joy. I get that. <laughs> I could absolutely do without those things. My, my When I first heard that they were floating this idea a few months ago, I thought it was a done deal. And I went on the radio talking about how wonderful, finally, for these teachers to have a, a policy that they could look to and say, no, no, there, there's no wiggle room here. This is an absolute ban. You put it in your... You put it in your locker at the beginning of the day. You take it out at the end of the day. Um, th- th- this, this to me is um, when, when I read, oh, this is going to take us a long time to figure out why. This is low-hanging fruit. Grab it, rip it off the vine, and put it in your pocket. This is simple, simple stuff. It is whatever academic benefit can be derived from a phone is immediately and completely discounted from how distracting these things are. Uh, that it's as simple as that, but take them out. Mm-hmm. Your kids are going to study more. We've, we've seen the studies in places where this has happened. You, when, when you, when you ban cell phones, kids attention spans grow. Why? Because TikTok makes their attention spans shrink. Everything yeah. that a teacher is trying to achieve in a classroom, the phone does the exact opposite. It trains them in the exact yeah. opposite way. I don't want my teachers having to try to compete with TikTok. And uh, this, you know, when you when you read in that Toronto Star article that um, that you know some some teachers are more comfortable than others. You know, it shouldn't have to be up to the we, teacher. No, no, it and, have and to be the bearer of bad news. And Ben, we have enough bad habits as adults as it is, and this just isn't about education. This is we can make school culture better. I've watched so many TV yeah. stories from the states. They're ahead of the curve in states like Florida, Alabama, Oregon, where they, they have to put their phone in one of these yonder pouches. Like if you go to a yeah. big stand up show or whatever, that way you know where it is. I get it. I wouldn't yeah. want to leave my phone at a at a, a elementary school office for eight hours. At least I know it's in my bag. It's in a pouch. It's not going anywhere. But Ben, the, like what the teachers will say is kids will play cards again. They'll they'll play soccer yeah. again. They'll play murder they'll ball again and throw utility balls at each other's yeah. heads. That's what we want on recess on the playgrounds, not staring at your own phone all, all the time. And, and for the teachers to know that it is a policy and the, and the students don't look at them as if it's the teacher's choice and therefore putting the teacher in harm's way. We, listen, we've seen one of the worst case scenarios of what can happen when the teacher takes a phone away from the student on videos online. A lot of those videos coming from the United States. Physical altercations are a possibility. And mm-hmm. that, that's because the student thinks it's the teacher's decision. If this was a decision that came from on high from the TDSB, then all of a sudden it's the school, it's the teacher, the teacher's organization, it's the TDSB making this decision, and the teacher feels that somebody has their back. And right now it's them against the teenage mob, and you're taking away one of the most addictive things in their lives. How do you think they're going to react? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Hey, I'll be listening tomorrow morning. I got to, uh, hopefully not snow to shovel, but uh, I'm out and about okay, tons okay. of errands, and I'm going to get to hear you, and I love, the, I love the sound of that. Thanks so much for the time today. Gregory, all the best. Happy Friday. There's Ben Mulrooney. You'll hear him tomorrow morning, 7 to 10, right here on Toronto This Weekend. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Um, I want to talk to you about this story out of Oshawa. So this is, this is I know this Tim Hortons. And when you think about being able to walk into a Tim Hortons, sometimes you prefer the drive through right? But to not be able to walk in because the environment around it is no good leads us into a better conversation we have to have about safe supply and safe injection sites and open drug use. And I want to know whether this is happening in your community at a such an advanced level that you could see this happening, that you won't go in a McDonald's, 
a Tim Hortons, a public bathroom. Public bathrooms are for the public. They're for the public. They're for the tall, the short, the skinny, the not so skinny, the white, black, Asian, brown, whatever. But you're deciding not to go in there because you're worried about a bad element. And there's always been bad elements in cities. There's been bars that are rougher than others, streets that are rougher than others, neighborhoods and schools. What's one of the first things you ask about a school? Rough school? We used to do that when we went to high school. We knew who went to a rough school and who went to a bit of a a Ponce Pont school, a bit of a preppy school in my era, right? It was the era of the preppies in the 80s to go to school, all those John Hughes movies. 416-870-6400 is the phone number. I want to know what you're seeing and what you're avoiding in terms of places that are open to the public. Tim Horton should be open to everybody. But on Tuesday morning on Simcoe Street South in Oshawa, the Tim Hortons closed up. The doors are locked. You can't use the bathroom. You can't look at the donuts. You can't chat with the cashier. You can't decide to sit down and have a coffee and do some work. Why? They were getting too much of a bad element in in the store itself. And this is not in a bubble just because it's Oshawa. Oshawa's got some toughness and brittleness to it. But by the way, I would drive my kid to, he was doing co-op at Oshawa Generals games when he was a grade 11 student. So he'd run the camera, he'd work in the truck. It was great. But every time Oshawa Generals are playing, you got to drive him out to Oshawa from where I am. Oh, I got to get up off the couch and p- drive you and pick you up before he had his own license. But I was not walking into that Tim Hortons, and I was certainly not letting my 17-year-old son, and you know what 17-year-olds are like. They think they can take on the world. And he wasn't going in that store. Again, these are our communities. This isn't about arresting people. This isn't about shunning people. This is about assisting people. And I'll bring this up again. When it comes to harm reduction, I've said this over and over again. I understand the concept of reducing harm. I understand the concept of people not dying from a bad illicit drug habit or a bad illicit drug experience. But what we've lost the plot on utterly and completely, is the idea of a four-pillar drug strategy. And what do I mean by that? Well, one of it is harm reduction, but that's the only one we're utilizing right now. We're utilizing harm reduction. Do you want to know what the other pillars are? Prevention. How do we stop you from wanting to do drugs in the first place? Link to that, the second pillar, treatment and recovery. How do we provide that for you? If it's your kid out on the street, uh, you know, uh, like 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 potentially getting resuscitated because he's overdosed on trank or he's gone bonkers because he can't stop doing the drug he's doing. You would do anything and spend any amount of money. You'd be like, nice house I used to live in. I'm going to sell it and move somewhere so I can get my kid to stay alive for the next 70 years. They're supposed to bury us. We're not supposed to bury them. And there's too many times It's emotional. There's too many times when it's going in the other direction. And the last pillar is something they don't have in Oshawa. And you don't seem to have in your community by the text you're sending me right now. And that's community safety. Let me give them to you again. Harm reduction, prevention, treatment and recovery, community safety. I watched the previous... um, uh, I watched the previous generation have a better handle on this than we do as adults. Not that they were, not that they were, you know, heavy handed about it. You suffered from a problem. We recognized the problem and we decided, let's get you in somewhere and help. Let's also punish the bad actors, right? The concept always used to be, even in the 80s and 90s, let's put drug dealers in jail, not drug users. 
can't you can't let them go and, and use whenever they want and you can't let them go wherever they want whenever they want and do whatever they want but we can at least have some kind of baseline here and we've lost our brains when it comes to not being able to do any of this stuff because we think it's uh, it's harm prevention and it's none of the other three pillars so i bring up this tim hortons you can't go have your favorite cup of joe at, at timmy's you can't walk through the doors because they've made it drive through only and if you think this is the only one that's going to do this in the next several months, you're dreaming in Technicolor. Mark, you're in St. Catharines. Thanks for the phone call. You go right ahead. Yeah, this is a hot-button topic for me. I work downtown St. Catharines, and it has absolutely become just a cesspool. There is people shooting up, smoking crack openly on the street, and the police don't do a thing about it. There's a Tim Hortons here. There was for years and years. I work downtown Um, in these office buildings, and it was a a huge, you know, business. And in the last five years, it went from being a great spot to just literally homeless people camping in the double doors in the front, just smell like urine, Um, and and just, again, people out front smoking crack right openly, shooting up, putting up their little tents, and they had to literally shut it down. There wasn't a drive-through at this spot being downtown, so they just said, nope. There was actually two overdoses, at least, when I worked there, and somebody actually died in the bathroom. So, <sighs> can you imagine, Mark? Can you ma- like, Mark? Can you imagine working there? You know how you get a part-time job, and you're like, "Well, whatever I get, I get." Can you imagine dropping your 18, 19-year-old kid off to work part-time there? Imagine I would never that. even imagine it. Exactly. Thanks very much for the phone call, Mark. I appreciate it. It is one of those scenarios where, as I said, you're going to just experience what you experience when you're 18 or 19. Nobody knows how a part-time job's going to go. Um, so much of how I judge people, and listen, I can be I can be really, really grumpy at times, but you treat those people at those drive through windows and is those restaurants with the greatest level of respect because they want to move on to something better, you think, at a certain point in time. You, that's what That's what you would think. But we have an unprecedented crisis right now. And by the way, crises don't last forever. They don't. The Oxycontin crisis came and went. Um, other illicit drugs have come and went. But this is different. And you're good. here's the problem. There has been a movement to say safe supply. We got Carolyn Bennett yelling about it at the House of Commons. Safe supply saves lives. Well, it does if you implement the other pillars. We're not doing that. I'll say it again. Prevention, treatment and recovery, community safety. None of it's working. The concept is reduce those incidences um, and, and the prevalence of those problematic substance use. Don't just let people do it in the open. Don't let people do it seven days a week. Ken, thanks very much for the phone call. I appreciate it. You go right ahead. You're up in Barrie. Yeah, yeah always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, the Yeah, we have an epidemic up here, much like the guy from St. Catharines was talking about. We had a the centuries downtown is what we call the five points, five streets that interconnect. And we had a Tim Hortons down there, no drive through. And it closed uh, last year, uh, maybe the year before, due, just due to the homeless problem, uh, you know, drug addicts, uh, violence, that kind of thing. And it's not only there. Uh, we had our McDonald's downtown. Uh, actually, the owner removed all the wall plugs from, from the uh, location, the TV, the Wi-Fi just because the homeless people would go there, buy one drink, and sit there all day on the Wi-Fi, suit up in the bathroom. You bet. Phone, t- phone chargers, too. Like, the, you can't have even yeah. a phone charger for somebody like you or me or any of our listeners who might be at 5%. Go in there, have a coffee, get yourself back up so you can make the drive home. You can't have that yeah. anymore because people will sit and plunk there all day and openly use drugs. I've seen it myself. Yeah. 
You got it. I want to make one point. Yeah. You were just talking about uh, 18, 19-year-olds working. I have a 15-year-old daughter, okay? She's very responsible, straight-A student, no problems. I tell all my kids, get a job at 14. I don't care what you do, get a job. My daughter has been working at the Rexall and Barry on Bayfield Street for almost a year and a half when they moved to their new location. She's had to deal, 15 years old, with people overdosing in the bathroom. And she's been told by them that you, we have a Narc, uh, Narcan kit on site, you're to use it. And I told my daughter, and I don't care what anybody thinks of me, under no circumstances are you to use that on anybody. That is not your 15-year-old girl trying to make a bit extra money for school, cosmetics, clothes, whatever. And she's got to deal with people overdosing in the bathroom. Yeah, that's not what you sign up for. I'm with you, Ken. I don't care what anybody thinks. And you're right. That's the thank you for the phone call and and listening in from Barry. That ain't her responsibility. And it never should be. Because guess what? You'll be you'll be giving them a Narcon injection four days later. I'm not talking about sitting there and watching people die. But the system is call 911 and let a professional do it. I'm not letting a 15 year old kid, a 17 year old kid, a 25 year old kid um, be responsible and have that on their conscience. The rest of their life. No way, no how. I'm so glad you brought up that example. Because um, these injections, the, these uh, uh, Narcan injections, yeah, I guess we simply have to have them everywhere now. And why? Because we've been so irresponsible in the uh, foreshadowing to see what could potentially be coming. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We got ourselves another situation where Justin Trudeau says one thing and then does another. These homes behind me, They're on public land. They're affordable right now. Justin Trudeau promised to tear them down to build more homes. But what he didn't tell you is that only 13% of the homes that he's going to build will be affordable, which means that 87% of them could be luxury homes. What's the point of building more luxury homes when people can't even afford them? Okay, that's Jugmeet Singh, and that's from Edmonton. um, And he's out there, you know, putting fingers at the federal government um, for housing that already does exist. There are some some flaws in the logic uh, beyond that. He was also critical of Housing Minister Sean Fraser being here at an event I was at over the weekend. It was nice enough to get invited um, to the Empire Club and watch Sean Fraser speak. Did I buy everything Sean Fraser was selling? No, not necessarily. I'm watching all these people in the province. Paul Calandra is the housing minister here in Ontario. Uh, Sean Fraser is now uh, getting some at least attention for putting more of a spotlight on the importance of housing. I'm hearing all these politicians say we're building more housing than ever before. I'm like, you might want to be building more housing than ever before. The numbers from last November and October show that housing starts are down from 2023 or from 2022 through 2023 in the province and in basically every province right now. And some of that's the cost of the build. Some of that is and certainly the interest rates don't help matters. So let's get a read on this. I love our next guest uh, housing perspective. That's for sure. He knows his stuff and he joins us now. He is uh, Eric Lombardi uh, is kind enough to join us and spend some time uh, chatting about where this goes from the more neighbors pro housing movement. Eric, love having you on. Thanks very much for the time. Uh, Greg, thank you for having me on. I I also love talking to you. Where are the holes in uh, in Jugmeet Singh's criticism here about uh, what the Liberals are doing? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to point out is he got the basic facts about the project he was criticizing wrong. So this is actually an Indigenous-led developer, and while there will be 13% of the units being in that deeply affordable category, another half of those, 64 of the 137 units, actually going to be at 80% of market rental rate. And that's actually the rate that we use to classify um, affordable housing in Toronto. And you know, 
when you're actually looking at that unit mix, that is a very hard number to achieve in any project. So they're doing it to also have like indigenous programming and all this stuff. And it's, it's just like, this is actually a totally fine project. Why is this the hill that Jake Nate wants to die on? And his criticism of the federal government's programs. And the concept should um, be really like th- there's a lot of ways to um, lower housing prices. But one big one is we do have to. And I mentioned the interest rates just now. you got to incentivize private builders to increase that number of units that's available in the market. And it does look like there's an attempt, at least on, on, on surface, for the liberals to do that at the very project he was criticizing. I mean, exactly right. And, you know. Uh, the Housing Accelerator Fund that Sean Frazier has been going around the country to try to encourage cities to change some of their rules around planning and zoning has actually been really effective in getting some of the biggest municipalities to do more to change. Now, could the province have done that, all those things, instead of municipalities? Yes. Should they still? Also, yes. Does the federal government have a lot more to do on this subject, particularly on the demand side around uh, immigration and, and tax treatment, et cetera? Yes. But, you know, the federal government is really starting to move here. So the NDP's caught with this message that it's kind of like last decade's nimbyism. And uh, it's, it's very confusing who, why they're doing so. Um, you wrote something that's that's generational based that I wanted to dig in on. But if you if you mind telling the audience, um, you, like I said, smart guy, I don't know how old you are. How old are you, Eric? Uh, I'm 29. And you wrote and I read I, I, you put a great graph up to document this. Condos are basically my generation's only hope for home ownership. And I read that and I thought. I never had to look in the mirror and say that when I was 29. And I'll tell you, like, I didn't, you know, not to dig too deeply into my finances. I didn't have a job where I made over 40 grand until I was 31. So I had no money to save with. And I had 16 grand in student loans as well. Like, I never, I didn't know the year, but I always thought I'd get there because it wasn't about the cost of the house. That's the dilemma your generation's facing at 29, isn't it? Um, And, you know, it is, right? And if you you look at any statistic or any indicator like a new con- a condo is as affordable to my generation today as the average house was um 15 years ago that's a shame that that's happened but you know jagmeet is going off about these luxury condos and it's like the average new condo in canada is like 650 square feet it's less than half of the average home like we have seen you know a downward on living standards for my generation and we have to get told by Jake Meat, who you know is a wealthier person who absolutely lives in a nice home oh that like this type of housing that we do need more of it's also luxurious it's it's crazy yeah and you note as well you wrote this the vast majority of condos are entry-level housing not luxury housing so for Singh to go to this property and talk about how luxurious he is the goal of a condo in many cases um it, it certainly can be an, an end career or an en- almost end of life scenario where you think my kids are grown don't need the space anymore it'll be me and my wife or i'm divorced i i, I just want less space and less responsibility but to your point when you start off the concept might be let's see how things go get into the market stop renting have our own place and maybe we flip this in five or six years and can get something with a yard or a garage that's the concept yeah and i mean there is still the equity value proportion of it right like 
in, you know, especially before interest rates started going up, you would still be paying more in your principal that stays as part of your wealth than you were in interest if you were renting, right? And so a lot of people in my generation were willing to make that trade-off to build a little bit of a nest egg to help them save for that mm-hmm. next move so that, you know, they can go off and have a family. And, you know, we're, we're having this housing crisis and, you know, everyone is talking about solutions and, you know, we need to have a lot more housing. We get a lot less rigid about what it takes to get to yes, to build it. And then you have Jagmeet Singh in the NDP that has this general generational opportunity to talk about mobilizing that blue collar labor force, union workers, you know, working class entrepreneurs to build the housing stock that will deliver that rising living standard that I think my generation deserves. And it's nowhere. Um, it, it baffles me. Um, before you go, a lot of people blasted the city. A lot of people are in on on the liberals for not. And certainly Sean Fraser's turn from being immigration minister to housing minister and whatever work he's doing now. It's really hard for people to let go of of some of the out of control scenarios, notably international students. What's your expectation and, and ask for the Ford government? I, I, I don't know that they're skating, uh, skating away from all this, but they don't mind if, if the municipal um, if, if there's a bit of a municipal federal war and they just sort of slide back away from the from from the firefight because they have responsibilities also here. They really do. Oh, I mean, I would actually say that the provincial government has the most in their area to do. I mean, you know, you know, one of the reasons why we're having this crisis in international students is the provincial government's inability to regulate its own college sector, right? But even beyond that, you know, the Ford government released its housing accelerator, sorry, housing uh, task force recommendations and said that this would be our roadmap. And they've been hinting that reform is going to come, and now it's like two years later. But if you're an industry, you know, the rational move is, well, if this is going to be cheaper or the process is going to be easier and I don't have to spend millions of dollars on consultations and all this stuff to build some housing, then maybe I should wait until the conditions from a policy perspective are better, like the province keeps saying they're That's going right. to be. Yeah. But the province keeps not doing those things. And so yeah. you know, when you have failure across municipalities where yeah. almost all of them are duplicating all this work, you don't have just a municipal problem. Municipalities don't exist in our constitution. That's a provincial problem. And Doug Ford has kind of said, this issue is hard. That's not to touch it. That's right. And that's the shame. Yeah, it's got to change. It's got to change in 2024. And, or, or it's obviously fantastic for uh, for both the liberals and the NDP to dig in on him and say, here's, you know, let's leave the federal government out of this. Let's look at what you haven't done. I got a blast, Eric. Love our conversations. Thanks very much for this. Thank you. Eric Lombardi uh, joining us.